Welcome to the 24-hour conference on global organised crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime took place online in November 2020 and was organised by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Hundreds of academics, researchers, journalists and others from around the world gathered together to present and discuss the latest research in organised crime. We've selected just 14 of them for this podcast series. But I would encourage you to head over to the website oc24.globalinitiative.net where you can find recordings of other sessions. In this episode, you'll hear the session disrupting the illicit antiquities trade in the real and virtual world. I'm Louise Shelley, and I am the moderator of this panel. And what we're going to hear is a multidisciplinary presentation on disrupting the illicit antiquities trade in the real and virtual world. It is a combination of Tess Davis, uh, distinguished lawyer with the Antiquities Coalition, Leila Hashemi with the TRAC, the Terrorism Transnational Crime and Corruption Center, and who has done a lot of the, the analytics for this work online in both the open and dark web, and Michael Lofning, uh, of Lafnane Associates, who worked with Track on a project that ran for over a year on exploring the illicit trade out of Iraq and Syria. And Leila and I are just finalizing the edits of a book that comes out of this very rich collaboration that we had um, a few years ago. And we have continued to follow this trade online um, in the subsequent years. So let me introduce uh, Tess Davis first, who will introduce the, the subject and talk about the very valuable work that the Antiquities Coalition does to find the illicit antiquities trade and try and disrupt it. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Is everyone able to hear me okay? Uh, well, again, my, thank you so much, Dr. Shelley, for the introduction. Um, it's an honor and a pleasure to be here with such a distinguished panel and speaking to people around the world. Again, my name is Tess Davis, and I'm Executive Director of the Antiquities Coalition. Our nonprofit and nonpartisan think tank unites a diverse group of experts in the fight against the illicit trade in ancient artifacts, which is funding crime, armed conflict, and violent extremism around the world, as we'll be discussing tonight. Our group is made up of business leaders, former government officials, lawyers, security experts, archeologists, and other professionals. And we are proud to join forces with governments, with law enforcement, and also with the public to ensure that our past is preserved for the next generation, while also strengthening legal markets and trade practices. 
As we're discussing today, while ancient sites have been plundered throughout history, in recent decades, the looting and trafficking of antiquities has become a global and a multi-billion dollar illegal industry. And in reality, this plunder for profit, this cultural racketeering as we call it, it's not being carried out by the likes of Indiana Joneses and Lara Crofts, the FBI, the UN, universities, Experts around the world, again, are warning that it's funding crime and conflict, whether that's mafia syndicates, armed insurgents, or even terrorist organizations. And this is because you no longer need a fedora and whip to get your hands on ancient treasures. Uh, today, their pursuit requires little more than money. It's easier than ever to buy antiquities due to technological advances like Global Express Mail, instant electronic messaging, and money transfers, social media, and online auction houses. At the same time, the world's wealthy are continuing to flock to high-end galleries and auction houses around the world, and again, spending billions of dollars on ancient art each year. And with the passion of the serious collector, many proclaim themselves preservers of the past. In reality, the truth is a little more complicated. And this is because, again, as we'll be discussing tonight, Many artifacts on the market were pillaged from archaeological sites or sacred sites at some point in their history. They were robbed from a grave or raided from a temple, often during armed conflict or other crisis. That or their fate, which is also a problem. See, there are surprisingly few sources, few legal sources rather, of antiquities, but ironically, there's a large legal market. In that market, it really is growing. The major reports on the art market, we don't have separate numbers just for antiquities, but the major reports on the art market value it at around $65 billion. And the US is the largest share of that, around 43%. Other experts think that's just the tip of the iceberg. And it's that multi-billion dollar scale that makes the art market vulnerable, not just to the illicit trade, but to a wide range of crimes. <coughs> I'm sorry, um, if you could change the slide. And if there were any doubts of this, they were like hopefully removed earlier this year when the United States Senate released the results of a bipartisan investigation confirming that bad actors have been exploiting the $28.3 billion American art market. Um, this 150-page report from the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations detailed how Russian oligarchs have laundered at least $18 million through the American art market in recent years, evading U.S. sanctions imposed in 2014 on Vladimir Putin's inner circle. And, our U.S. Senators Rob Portman and Tom Carper, they spearheaded this inquiry in the hope of discovering why the sanctions, which President Trump continued this year, had not been more effective. And their answer was, in part, the art market. Um, in the full PSI report, a congressional staffer described their findings as really only the tip of the iceberg. But this was met with some shock from policymakers and the press. However, many of us, um, including the group speaking here tonight, have long warned that the public and private sectors must take action to protect the art market from criminal misuse. And this is because it's a really a low risk but high reward opportunity for criminals. Next slide. Now, why is this? A number of aspects of the art market contribute um, to its level of risk. And this includes its longstanding culture of secrecy as well as the unique nature of art itself. After all, art doesn't carry anything like a VIN number. Much of it is very portable, especially antiquities, things like cylinder seals from Iraq. You can carry a few in your pocket. Um, and it's thus very hard to track. Uh, it's also notoriously difficult to price, uh, which of course criminals can, can manipulate. After all, 
two equally qualified experts can look at the same piece and be widely off in the value they assign. And that in turn will be widely different from what somebody is actually willing to pay for it. Slide. And of course the issue of money is really important. Um, global sales of art and antiquities, again, they're in the tens of billions of dollars. And the US is the largest market worldwide for that accounting for 44% of the global sales by total. And I should um, mention too, that there's a couple of different major stories um, reports on the size of the art market, which using their, their values different widely, but even ac across these, again, 44% is, is the number that seems to hold for the US portion of that. Slide. Now one would hope that these aspects of the art market would make it subject to more regulation, not less, but the opposites happened. Uh, the art market is often, and I think correctly referred to as the largest unregulated market in the world. One reason for that is that it's seen as the purview of the wealthy. And another is that it's seen crimes within the art market are seen as something that doesn't affect anyone beyond the wealthy. That is, if art crime is viewed as a crime, it's viewed as a white collar victimless crime, um, which I hope tonight's panel makes clear that it is not. But regardless, the art market has continued to get an exemption from what are really otherwise standard laws and regulations that again, in my belief, apply to every industry of comparable risk and scale. Um, so to recall the Russian scandal that I mentioned earlier, if those individuals had been buying precious metals, stones or jewels, or even an automobile, a boat, a plane, US law would have required the sellers to confirm the identity of the actual buyer and taken some basic steps to ensure that the transactions weren't covers for crime. But what's concerning is that many of the institutions with whom these Russians and the worked with, um, their middleman worked with, had voluntary AML programs in place to screen for blacklisted individuals and money laundering. Yet, according to investigators, the employees who facilitated these sales, sales, they never even asked the middleman the client's identity, even when it was known that he was not actually the ultimate owner. Um, so you take all of this together, the amount of money involved, the lack of transparency, the lack of regulation, again, this unique nature of art itself, and you really get a perfect storm for a wide range of crimes, uh, fraud, forgery, tax evasion, money laundering, sanctions violations, and even terrorist financing, as George Mason's um, important work has made clear. Slide. The Antiquities Coalition um, convened the Financial Crimes Task Force, actually, sorry, next slide, um, to support the public and private sector as they fight back against these threats. And this multi-stakeholder group, uh, the first of its kind within the United States, uh, with it, we tried to really unite allies in the art sector, the financial sector, and the legal communities, as well as former law enforcement and government officials. And over the past year and a half, um, this diverse group of experts has worked together to develop recommendations for protecting the art market from criminal misuse. Their resulting report, which I'm happy to answer questions about later in the panel, Reframing US Policy on the Art Market. This was published in September through an interactive web, um, website at our main website. And it calls for new policies, new practices, and new priorities for the United States to implement on its own, but also in conjunction with the private sector and the international community. I encourage you to visit the website, explore the international re um, interactive resources and read the full report. However, I'm also happy to discuss it later tonight in the questions, but um, in closing, 
Um, just with this report, we were hoping to warn that the art market's continuing exemption from, again, what are standard laws and regulations is giving criminals an easy backdoor into the world's largest economy. Um, but there's good news in that, too, and that there is much that the U.S. government can do. There's much that the U.S. art market can do to meet this threat head on both domestically as well as internationally with our allies. So thank you for your time tonight. And again, I look forward to answering any questions later. Thank you, Tess, for being so clear, concise. And, and you're gonna, we're gonna hear now from people who collaborated with Tess on this financial task force. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Leila Hashemi, who's now a, a postdoc at George Mason University. And during her doctoral year, she worked on this project of, counter, of countering online antiquities networks in Syria and Iraq through sophisticated online data analytics. And this is what she'll talk to you about. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelley, for the introduction. As you mentioned, my name is Leila Hashemi and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at TRAC. I recently graduated from George Mason University with my PhD in public policy, and I'm currently working on detecting illicit supply chains of counterfeit pharmaceuticals and PPE. Some of you might've joined us in our previous session. It's a pleasure to be here today. I'll be presenting our research findings from the Countering Looting of Antiquities in Syria and Iraq project, also known as CLASI. The research was run by the Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center at George Mason University and funded by the U.S. Department of State Bureau of Counterterrorism. To give you an overview of the project, I'll briefly outline its context and objectives. Both Iraq and Syria are now heavily impacted by war that is associated with terrorism and violence. This has led to a surge of the looting of archaeological sites across the region, as well as the increased production of counterfeits. It's widely believed that the trafficking of these objects generates substantial revenue for conducting acts of terrorism on local and international scales. In response to this often conflict-driven looting, the Classy Project sought to collect and analyze primary data and to investigate the complex trafficking processes and networks involved in the antiquities trade. Data was predominantly gathered from publicly available sources where much of this trade is currently concentrated. In this image, for example, we can see how social media platforms such as Facebook are used to advertise and sell potentially looted objects. In the course of our research, various digital tools were used in order to test the most effective methods for online investigation and countering this type of transactional crime. The research also acknowledged that a major stimuli of trafficking is global demand, often concentrated in the West, and therefore sought to promote responsible purchase and collection of cultural objects. I also was on the task force that Tess just mentioned to promote this. To implement the Classy project, a multilingual team of archeologists, antiquity specialists, and criminal network investigators carried out analysis of the current state of the online market. The research was approached from two angles. First, during our online sales monitoring, we analyzed the general nature of the antiquities market, traded materials and their flows, as well as illegitimate practices employed in transactions. We examined over 60 sites in seven languages, ranging from large internationally recognized auction houses and galleries to small scale independent dealers operating on more decentralized networks and marketplaces such as eBay. 
The monitoring focused on small objects as these are easily concealed and thus transported, but also less likely to be detected while in transit, the reason for which they're traded in large quantities. This image here depicts antiquities seized in 2016 during a raid on Islamic State fighters in Syria that were later returned to Iraq by the United States. This is just one of many examples that demonstrates the importance of understanding the value and dynamics of the antiquities exported from these two countries and how these relate to the funding of terrorism. Second, we deepened our understanding of sales networks through participant observation on social media. We monitored some of the most popular social media sites such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and we found that venues like eBay, Etsy, and the Darknet are unique in that they are interactive sales platforms with social media elements. So these sort of fit in both categories and help often provide potential leads for this type of research. We gathered the data by means of several specialized tools such as web scrapers, which I'll explain in one moment. Our sales monitoring led us to several findings. It's now confirmed that there's no reliable way of determining from online images whether any specific object was originally found in Syria, Iraq, or elsewhere, or whether this object was a counterfeit. This is often due to the low quality of images, especially for unclean coins or items of low levels of preservation. Many objects are sold with problematic provenance, which prevents us from understanding when they came out of the ground and their ownership history. A growing problem that goes hand in hand with an internet-based trade is that antiquities are often sold not as artifacts, but as toys, educational tools, jewelry making components, or simply curiosities. Genuine and illegally traded antiquities are often mixed together, which has been termed piggybacking. Sellers and buyers often use false accounts or even alter egos when engaging in online trade, obscuring their identities and hindering the ability to track transactions. And although it wasn't possible to relate specific financial flows to terrorist activity, and the trade does not to appear to be as valuable as previously assumed, it becomes clear that ISIS and other terrorist groups indeed have made revenues from antiquities trafficking. We also found that there is a very dynamic online trade. There is a democratization of the market and a flooding of the market with high volume of low value items, some of which are counterfeits. Through the use of relatively simple tools, such as web scrapers or spiders, we were able to automate much of our online sales monitoring. These web scrapers facilitate pulling information like the listing number, description, and price of an object into data spreadsheets for easy review by subject matter experts. With this method, we were able to use our resources where they were needed most. This blending of automated and manual analysis allowed us to streamline the listings monitoring process. And we found that many objects, like I mentioned before, were being sold on websites like Etsy as craft or hobby goods. And we discovered that online forums and social media sites contained valuable information, which led us to monitor venues like Facebook and the Darknet. We worked with several other tools, and we also collaborated with computational social scientists to gather and analyze our data. We partnered with Sayari, a data analytics company, and used Know Your Customer tools such as Butler, developed by DARPA and shown here to investigate online and identities on the open and dark web. We found no evidence of illicit coin and cuneiform sales on the dark net. And this can be explained by the fact that the antiquities market is a gray market where illicit and illicit goods are mixed, making these objects difficult to distinguish, but generally easy to trade without needing to use the dark web. 
In short, we developed a methodology that blended listings and social media monitoring, allowing us to obtain a more holistic perspective on the trade. And because no one tool met our research needs, we decided to build our own. The Facebook Profile Intel tool is a program that automates scraping of a Facebook profile. The tool looks at a profile's immediate friends and the contacts of these friends or friends of friends, allowing researchers to map network connections. Similar to the earlier Marketplace Web Scraper, this tool captures data automatically and parses it into files from which keyword searches and visual analysis may take place. The profile results file will show thumbnail images of profile photos. It also records the user's profile information and any comments, reactions, and likes on their posts. We're developing similar tools for other platforms as well as building image classifiers using machine learning and convolutional neural networks to enable the automatic detection of images containing coins, cuneiform, or violent content. These and other powerful tools allow for efficient processing of large amounts of data in a fraction of the time that it would take to collect and analyze this data manually. These automated searches provide standardized and replicable results which can then be examined in greater detail by subject matter experts. So where do we go from here? We're facing three important challenges. First, we're investigating a gray market with blurred trade boundaries where sellers combine licit and illicit objects to avoid detection and potentially fund terrorism. A second major challenge is that most objects are sold with vague or no provenance at all, showing a focus on authenticity while neglecting to determine provenance. And this issue cannot be overstated. The lack of clear provenance remains one of the biggest problems plaguing the market. And finally, there's been a flooding of the market with counterfeits and fakes as this highly profitable trade attracts actors seeking to increase sales. New technologies are improving the quality of counterfeits and the democratization of the market has introduced new actors who are often ill-equipped to detect fakes. And this shows the need to develop regulations that address the specific challenges of online trade. Efforts must be made to decrease demand for antiquities with questionable provenance and to promote responsible collection of cultural objects. Buyers should be made aware that the lack of due diligence promotes not only the destruction of heritage, but also the production of forgeries and that all this together can fund terrorism and fuel violence and conflict. With these methods, we can successfully combat the trafficking of cultural property through the use of powerful tools capable of tracking transnational crime in the digital era. More about our classy methodology and research findings can be found in our final report, which is actually linked here. And as Louise mentioned, we're very excited to announce our forthcoming Reutelage volume on antiquities trafficking in the real and virtual world. Thank you very much. I'll pass it on to Mike. Thank you, Layla, for your very clear and presentation that stuck to the time deadline. And now we'll turn the floor over to Mike Lofnane, who has decades of experience in doing financial investigations of different types of criminal activity and also following the money. Hi, can you hear me okay? Beautifully, Mike. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Dr. Shelley. Folks, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'll be probably the one to break the timing. I'll try very hard not to, but what can I say? I like to talk. Um, it has been an exciting experience to be on this project, both in the concept of working with GMU uh, 
and Dr. Shelley and, and Dr. Hashemi uh, in uh, working the study that, and building a training program out of the work that we did uh, looking at antiquities coming out of Iraq and Syria. Um, and then following on working with uh, Tess Davis and the, the same actors and working on that task force and building out a report talking about how important it is for the business sectors to become more engaged in, in dealing with this as a wide open area of risk. So with that being said, let me talk about a little bit of the background that we did in the, uh, in the analysis and what my role in it was and how that applies here. Um, basically the uh, role that I had as part of the team was to first look at some of the investigative processes that were going on in the Middle East area, where there were weaknesses uh, in antiquity investigation techniques, um, where the gaps were relative to effective uh, investigation uh, practices, and specifically in the area of financial investigations, which is where my background is. Um, I come from a long experience in the US government as working in financial crime investigations. And then uh, with the Department, US Department of Defense, I taught in uh, counter threat finance uh, involving terror organizations. So basically my role in all of this was to look at the financial backbones that drive these organizations and then come up with effective means to build investigative processes to counter, disrupt, destroy, bring to justice, however you want to put it, uh, the actors involved in these networks. So with that, we move on to the next slide. Um, in a simple, trying to simply put it on one slide to, to make it easy to explain, um, this is kind of what we identified as the activity going on in the antiquities area coming out of Iraq and Syria, where, where the study came from. And essentially we found in general, you had a, a source, you had the sourcing of, of artifacts coming out of the region, uh, methods of transport moving forward. And in that there were storage components that would fit moving to a point of sale across the top. Now engaged in also as a subsection of that, you had the movement of finance because we're dealing with, a, with business structures, are we not? We're dealing with the point they're doing this is to make money. And so the financial structures under here are the, they're the underpinning to the whole structures. And by attacking those financial structures beneath, we're able to disrupt largely the, the, the purpose to the organization. And that's how we try to approach this from our particular work. Um, you, had it, you had it coming out of Iraq and Syria. You had it going through transit uh, countries like Turkey, Lebanon, UAE, and then going to sale in the U.S. as, as uh, Tess Davis referenced, and obviously the U.K. and other parts in the uh, EU where you had the sales going through. Now, understanding the transnational level of this brings us to who's actually involved in this process. And what you're dealing with here are... Um, criminal organizations and terror organizations all engage in this type of, of practice. Some are small, some are large. Many don't have the means or capabilities to carry something to an international level. So there's points of transference that might occur. Typical example is you might have, um, this was the model that was used by ISIS in their particular operation. But when ISIS ceased their operation, the insurgents and, and those that were behind kind of kept the same process moving forward, where you had um, basically the land they controlled, they would, you'd pay a tax in order to be able to go in and exploit that area in order to obtain artifacts. And then you would have to carry it to a point 
you didn't necessarily have the means to carry it internationally. You had to carry it to a place where it could go out and be sold. So maybe you go to a shop owner. But the point is, there's a, there's a sale, immediate sale that occurs at that time where the money comes to the people that are dug it out of the ground. And now it's into the network where it's going to go move forward and be sold online or sold in, uh, sold in shops, whatever the means of transport and sale is going to happen from there. So uh, smaller organizations may be the ones that acquire the artifacts, but they're not necessarily the ones that sell it at the end of the pipeline. Um, so you see here you have... Uh, and many terror organizations are not necessarily international in their structure in order to effectively be able to support this. So you have uh, criminal enterprises that may be more effective to do this. Go to the next slide, please. And in a round set, these are the challenge. This is the, when they build these networks, when they build these structures, even in this environment, these are the areas they have to work in or deal with in order to effectively be successful in their operation. You have to deal with the um, laws that are out there. You got the new rules that came out of the EU. You got the new discussion for rules coming in place in the United States. You have the guidelines coming out of the Financial Action Task Force. You have the requirements of the banking laws where know your customer, due diligence comes into play and so on. I can't go through each one of these as components, but basically understand that these are the structures that these criminal networks have to operate within and build their structures in order to be successful in their operation. Okay, it requires uh, planning, it requires expertise, um, and but basically our counterpoints are what's on the screen here. We're the ones that are teaching or trying to get out there to the financial institutions, to the business institutions to watch for this illicit activity. They obtain the information and law enforcement then receives the suspicious activity information, which then they will launch and initiate an investigation. So basically it's getting the knowledge and ability out into this environment in order for them to be able to be effective in identifying the suspect activity. Next slide. Okay comes down to basically three structures that occur in these network systems. You have financial systems where the basically we're dealing with profit-oriented businesses and they want the money to be moved, they want it to be safe, they want it to be collected. And so they have to have effective methods to move through the financial systems that exist in the world today, be it banks, be it uh, Hawala systems, be it other means of value transfer, alternate remittance, but they have to have those systems and they have to be able to work with those systems in a way that they don't get detected. They have to have means of communication because this is a transport system. Everything is carrying through. So what are the transport and the communication structures that are in place that allow product to go forward and then the payments to be returned? And then the business systems, the use of fronts, the use of shells, use of other means of transport, the things that are necessary in order to have the physical structure that allow these things to be moved. Even if they're sold online, there's still a point of shipment that has to occur. So how do those things structure? And when I teach in the law enforcement environment, it's teaching them to this particular point, building investigative structures to attack these three buttons. Next slide. So basically it comes down to the professionals on the other side. And the professionals on the other side are, um, you could have the local tier, which is the local person that is maybe working with the capability to, to work with the local officials that allow you to get into the place where you can dig out the, dig the uh, antiquity, antiquity, the coins out of the ground. 
or you're dealing with the corruption angle that allows the illicit activity to occur at the local level. They know how to work at that level, but they may not know how to work at the level of getting out of the country. This is where that network occurs. Now you're dealing with moving into a network with a broader scale and somebody that knows how to work on the internet, someone that knows how to work with international shipment, can, can withstand the scrutiny that might be in place on a trade-based money laundering structure or any other kind of structure in order to make it work. And then finally, you have the top layer. And the top layer is the political layer. It's the shadow facilitators is how they're also described. The ones that help support and provide the political structure that maybe allows a lesser enforcement on an issue or will uh, cause certain laws not to be enforced or inspections not to be done. That kind of thing that basically sets the foundation on which the structure can actually land. Um, this is the challenge for law enforcement, having the ability to work in this structure, collect this information, build effective cases, know these areas that in which they have to conduct investigations and uh, move forward to a successful conclusion um, to the issues being raised. I, I think that, next slide, I think that concludes my presentation and um, I'm Thank set you. to go. Thank you, because the gatekeeper, the timekeeper has said, we're out of time. All right. I have a bunch of questions, but let's start with the audience. And I hope they keep rolling in. Julie Ailing um, asked, are law enforcement resources sufficient for investigating these crimes? Do governments have the political will to address these crimes in the depth required? Um, I'll go forward with that as a start. Uh, great question, Julie. Thank you for asking. It is... Um, the biggest challenge for law enforcement is a lack of maybe a widespread experience. There is, There are segments in law enforcement that have expertise in this area. But when you look at the size of the area of risk, an unregulated value transfer system that allows money to be moved very quickly and very easily with basically in a culture of anonymity, it makes it there. there's just not enough law enforcement out there with an understanding of how this particular sector works. So the answer is, I don't believe there are enough sufficient resources to handle this, particularly on an international level. Um, the political area, political will, I've not seen anyone that says they've been told uh, not to do an investigation. I'm sure that there is political pressure. Obviously, you're dealing with po political powers that they are. But um, I have to say, in all honesty, in the work, and I've been in law enforcement either as an agent or as an instructor now for over 40 years. Um, the people I've seen and worked with have the will to want to try to make this work. Having the resources to actually accomplish it is a different challenge. Tess, do you want to add something on this? Yes, to, to add to that, I do think the situation is improving. We've much of what our organization does is actually focused on changing political will. We do that much more than trying to reach the general public. Um, though, of course, the general public can be helpful because it puts pressure on the politicians um, that's needed to do this. But we have noticed a, a change in the, the last five or six years that, for example, it used to be when we would go into an official's office, whether that was an official with the U.S. government or the 
EU or the United Nations, we had to spend a sizable portion of the meeting explaining, first of all, that there is a problem. I do think that due to investigations like that into the Rodenbergs, due to the work of groups like Track and others, that there is now a growing awareness that there is a problem. And so you can start the conversation with what can be done about it. And that, that is a big change and it's a substantial one. Um, that said, of course, there is always more that can be done. And we do think it's, you know, even events like this, um, publications, just getting across the fact that there are reasons to care about this beyond preservation. My training uh, before I became an attorney, I was in archaeology. And so cultural heritage is very important to me. But as we've seen from all the presentations tonight, there are other reasons um, for governments in particular to care about this. Um, it, is tied to national security. It's also tied to economic integrity. And also increasingly, I think it's also a consumer protection, um, an issue of consumer protection that you do have people out there who responsible collectors, dealers, auction houses, um, who are, are dealing in art and artifacts and um, being misled by a small but influential number of criminals. Tess? I think it's important also since many, not everybody, but some of our listeners are our academics here to explain how important it is for academics to be able to collaborate with law enforcement so they can't acquire all the expertise they need for this, but can help them to figure out how to prioritize and do investigations. Yes, just to, to build, that's an excellent point. And it, it is something that's really crucial. We have been very honored to work closely with Homeland Security Investigations in particular, which is, is quite focused on this issue in the United States. They have a small but very dedicated team, um, which has had a huge impact. I mean, taking down major transnational criminal networks working in this area. But they, they do need assistance. They need everything from knowing you know, whether an antiquity is real or not, where it comes from, what its value is. Um, there's so much information that they need from the scholarly community. And the other thing I would add to that is when you're doing your research, um, I, a colleague of mine, Donna Yates, um, commented at the, about the PSI report on the Rodenbergs, how disappointed she was to, to read through it and see that they had not, the report had not uh, cited uh, any of the academic and scholarly research that it relied largely on news reports or, or other reports from NGOs, et cetera. And this is a problem and it's something I think I have a foot in academia, something we can certainly all do better is trying to make sure that our research is getting to the, the policymakers who can do something with us, um, at, do something with it. And that is a challenge because it's, it's difficult to get a government official to, to read a two-page report, let alone a 60-page report. And so there are, are things that can be done, even just you know, including executive summaries, um, doing briefing papers, uh, to make sure that the important research that you're, you're doing can get to the policymakers who can impact policy with it. Thank you, Tess. Layla, did you want to say something? Yes, please. Yes. So I think um, Mike does a great job of pointing out that there's a lack of resources for law enforcement to address these issues in his chapter for our forthcoming book. And it's not just a lack of resources, but it's also a, a sort of lack of understanding of the trade. Um, and as part of the Classy Project, we did develop a training specific to law enforcement 
um, allowing them to detect any suspicious activity and work with academics and subject matter experts, really trying to bridge the knowledge and get law enforcement to reach out to people that are experts in the field. Thank you. Before you get off, Layla, I think that you start the next question. This one is from Jim Maroney. Do you have a sense from studying the images you found online, what fraction of objects appear to be fake? Do you have a method for assessing this at scale when you have hundreds or thousands of images? Great, great question. So as I pointed out in my presentation, looking at online images can be helpful and we can sort of track the trade through that. But a lot of the subject matter experts that we worked with pointed out that from the low quality of images and just the sort of nature of the trade, you really need to be able to see and, and touch and be in the same room as an artifact to be able to, to discerning if it's um, detected, if it's a fake or a counterfeit. Um, in terms of assessing the scale, this is, uh, yeah, we have lots of images, but like I mentioned, we have um, automated tools that we're building that allow us to kind of process a lot of this information. And so, as I mentioned, we're using um, artificial intelligence or machine learning to be able to train models to to look for what we're looking for, if that makes sense. So we can train a model that says, this is what a typical coin advertisement looks like, look for more of these or, or flag these in these larger data sets. But you know, with this caveat of the pictures are only um, going to help so much. For instance, with coins, um, you need the front and the back of the coin, you need the entire, you know, good lighting on the image. Um, so there's definitely limits to this, but we are successfully processing a lot of this data in an automated fashion. Thank you. Anyone else wanna jump in on this? Okay. Question from Christina Baines. Thank you for these wonderful presentations. Tess, you had commented on counterfeit fake antiquities. Can you comment more on the counterfeit market and how this is being addressed? Are there tech particular technological innovations that you'd recommend around this? Excellent question. And while I'm by no means an expert in counterfeits or fakes or forgeries, and um, it, is a, it is a major problem uh, for all types of art and artifact from the ancient to the contemporary. Thankfully, it's also the, the cure is, is the same in this situation. The steps that you take uh, that it be it a dealer, a gallery, an auction house, a museum, the steps that they would take and should take to prevent from buying an illicit antiquity also protect these same buyers from buying fakes and forgery. That is having a provenance, that is a, a detailed ownership history. Something as simple as that, though it's not as simple as in practice, um, again, it protects the art market from a wide range of, of problems. Um, our hope is also that if the art market is eventually um, put into the framework, the AML framework um, in the United States, and this is something that has happened in Europe, and by Europe I mean the European Union, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom have all um, subjected the art market to AML protections under their law. This is something that's pending in the United States. And, if that does happen, it'll protect the art market for more than just, just money laundering. Uh, it puts into place, again, what is, you know, good practices um, that will protect against a wide range of crimes, including hopefully fakes, forgeries, and, and counterfeits. Um, Mike may have more to add to that. So I know um, this is just, addressed. Just a couple thoughts. Um, 
basically, this is that construct I think I tried to bring up in my presentation was the tip of the spear element. Um, this is where the rules that are coming in place uh, that are in the UE, 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 EU and then moving the US as is being proposed, it's very important for them to be able to identify those, those things that make suspicious action present. Um, right now, there's really not an effective sharing of information. The information sharing between law enforcement and the community, the sector is a little, is, it does occur, but it could occur better if you had the regulatory support to actually drive communication and understanding what kind of records and what kind of information might be there. Uh, in the investigation, also for organizations to be able to share among themselves as to what to look for. Uh, that would identify the suspicious activity that might therefore result in a report of suspicious actions and then an investigation will ensue. Law enforcement is a reactive structure. They require somebody to tell them something is going on. So it's up to the art sector, it's up to the experts in the field to say, hey, something's not right here, and then work with law enforcement with the expertise to try to bring it together. Um, the issue of, of counterfeit with due diligence efforts are certainly identifying who's involved in the structure, then that information coming out as to who's good, who's bad, the use of provenance. Uh, and the use of creating a false provenance is a very yeah. common activity that's that's present here, uh, where they'll just make up the paperwork. Um, coins, typically, you don't get provenance because they came out of the ground and there's really not a lot of history there. Statuettes, other things, it's easier to see. And then you can um, track it back and see if it's valid. And that tracking back, that due diligence is an important factor in this particular uh, sector. Maybe you could <clears throat> give for our audience a concrete example, either you or Layla, because I know we have them in the book, of counterfeit provenance and how people say this belonged to my grandfather or my uncle and that person never collected anything in their lives. Right, so uh, to speak to this, the if there is, well, first, a lot of these objects are being treated claiming to be part of a private collection, going, you know, passing hands through families. And then if we have provenance documents, as Mike and I found, they're often fake or forged. So you either have um, a very vague provenance or um, forged, forged documents. Um, in terms of Christina's question, if I could speak to that, we found a lot of online forums that kind of call out bad actors and actually list bad eBay dealers, ones that have been you know, accused of having suspicious transactions, not following through, as well as selling counterfeits or fakes. Um, in terms of tech, I wish I had more tech innovations to recommend around this, but in terms of tech and counterfeits, there's been, a, you know, a lot of advancements in creating more um, convincing counterfeits and fakes through the use of technology. <laughs> right. I can offer one very quick case uh, example of a, of a counterfeit provenance where there was a, a attempted sale of a sarcophagus uh, to the United States. That's the one you wanted to get to? Talk about, yeah, okay. go into that, yeah. And, and, and in that one, it's always about the bodies, isn't it? Okay. Um, this particular one uh, was coming up through the UAE, then going through another country, then coming to the US. And in order to effectively have this happen, the, the, the gentleman involved in making this all happen wanted to build provenance 
to show that it didn't come out of a place it shouldn't have with the laws over there about antiquities. So he created false profit. First of all, he tried to go to an expert who knows how to make this stuff. And that guy didn't want to do the work for them. So he had to do it himself. And he created provenance for in the name of his dead father. That's where this came from. Um, the only problem was his father never owned a thing. So uh, when they tr did a little, just a little bit of track back, it was not hard to show that it wasn't for real. But that raises the real problem is the fact that sometimes all they'll do is see the paper and say, hey, okay, this is done. We've got the paper, we got everything we need and not do the effective due diligence to go back and protect and ensure that it actually came the way that it came. And that's where these structures are weak and the challenges are present. Does anyone want to talk about some an antique wood from a place that it wouldn't survive? And so we knew you knew that the provenance was not correct because it couldn't survive for that many millennia in a damp climate. That was another one that I remember in our book. Right. And that was a, a case where, again, a subject matter expert was able to detect that you wouldn't be able to have the, the object, um, that it wouldn't survive in that, that sort of climate. And so that really points to the importance of people that know the trade and know these objects. You know, I, I mentioned that for Classy, we specifically focused on coins and cuneiform. And while those worlds overlap in a sense, they're very much experts in their own objects and what they're following and what makes an authentic object in that trade. Okay, we have another question. I'm interested in if anyone knows the role of law enforcement, whether it is limited in helping prevent the illegal trade of antiquities, specifically at borders when items are being moved between countries. Um, I'll start that very, very briefly. I'm sure Tess and uh, Leela have some very specific things to say about that. The problem is the lack of expertise that's present at, point, at these kind of points. Um, Homeland Security and the Department of, you know, Department of Homeland Security here in the U.S., their primary organization where they have their experts are in New York City. Now, it's not to mean that they don't have experts in other ports, but they're not as strong as the ones in New York. So if you're a bad guy and you're bringing something in, where do you go? In the case of the sarcophagus, he came in through Florida. He got caught because of other reasons, but the point was they go to where you're not. All right. So they'll go to where there's just not the same understanding or expertise. There are some phenomenal law enforcement organizations around the world that have the ability to work in this area, not even a question, um, but they're small, they're limited. There's only so much they can do. And that creates just an overwhelming challenge for everything else to come through. Um, I hope that I'll, I'll stop there. Tess, I'm sure you want to add to that. Yeah, no, again, in the United States, we have both um, Homeland Security investigations at Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Federal Bureau of Investigation both have dedicated teams focused on this issue. Um, that said, they're, you know, a handful to a couple of dozen, depending, depending on the week and day. When you to, to put that in perspective, the, the Carabinieri and someone else who's on today might have a better update on this than I do, but I believe it's more around three or 400 officers uh, for a country that's much, much, much smaller in territory than the United States. Um, these agents are keeping incredibly busy. Again, I, as I mentioned, they're very dedicated to this. 
and they are so busy that, you know, I was speaking to, to one recently that, you know, they were running out of space to actually put, put pieces that they had seized. And I, I think in my head, as I, I believe many of us probably do of the unlimited warehouse in Indiana Jones, where they're rolling the, uh, the Ark of the Lost Covenant, but you know, these, these practicalities, even things like space are, are hamstringing them. And there is so much out there, but uh, one thing I do think this, this demonstrates, uh, for example, the Manhattan DA's office also has a prosecutorial unit on this. Um, a handful, I believe it's around three attorneys now. I don't think any of them are full-time on it. And they also have uh, four or five analysts working with them. And so a, a pretty small team. Uh, they, what they have been able to accomplish just having you know, a handful of people working on this issue has been shocking. Again, we're talking about taking down major transnational networks, not by no means limited to the, the Middle East. I mean, these are groups that are operating around the world uh, and actually especially active in, in South and East and Southeast Asia. So it, I think that demonstrates that if a government is willing to make even a small investment of you know, a handful of full-time employees, it can really, really have a major impact. Um, as has been mentioned tonight, this has been a, a low cost, uh, high reward crime. Um, and if we can shift that balance even just a little bit, um, it, it could hopefully do a lot of good um, in making people think twice. I think this also really emphasizes the that this is a transnational issue. Um, and so it's very much subject to specific national laws, as Tess mentioned, and you know what countries we're dealing with. We also saw a lot of um, evidence of laundering of objects and their documentations falsifying documents while in transit, particular, particularly through free trade zones. Um, another thing I wanted to point out is that, that objects are often stored for long periods of time until it's sort of deemed safe or um, you know, more uh, acceptable to put the item up for sale. So when we have objects stored for five, 10, 15 years, that makes it much more difficult for law enforcement to follow these, these illicit goods. If I could just add one very quick point um, many of the investigations, as I said, law enforcement is a reactive entity. Many times an investigation to a particular event is because, frankly, someone's told them it's happening. So they meet them at the border and then that goes from there. And hopefully then that rolls to a larger, more uh, expansive investigation. So many of the normal investigative tools and techniques that we're aware of certainly apply in this environment and are used in, in much the same way as you might see in wildlife trafficking, human trafficking, any of the other kinds of, of issues. All right, that leads into the next question we just got. Um, Julie addressed it to Tess, but some of the rest of you can also answer this. Julie Ailing, who works on wildlife trade said, do these criminal networks also indulge in other transnational crimes such as drug trafficking or the illicit wildlife trade or are they specialized? Um, and I also wait before you finish. I also want you to talk a little bit about Tess when you talked about these transnational networks. What kind of individuals do you have in these networks? Because a lot of people today have been hearing about the mafia, Nigerian crime groups, and I want you to explain a little bit more what you mean of the components of these networks. Well, I'll, I'll focus, and I know I know the other speakers as well. Um, 
I've done a lot of research on this subject. My own research in this area at the University of Glasgow, and I also teach cultural property law at Johns Hopkins, um, and have taught a course at Tulane University School of Law as well, is actually focused on the Southeast Asian Kingdom of Cambodia. And um, I lived in Cambodia for years, I've worked very closely with the government there and also with the US government and recovering and returning pieces that were looted from that country during their long civil war. And the reason I think Cambodia is important to mention is for one, it reminds us that this is a problem that's been going on a long time. Um, in Cambodia and the conflict in the 1970s, uh, criminal groups merged with armed insurgents and you know, put into place organized trafficking networks that eventually did help to fund the Khmer Rouge and other groups operating there. Um, the Khmer Rouge are again an excellent case study because they dealt with whatever they needed to, to deal with. They didn't, eventually they didn't care whether it was antiquities, whether it was timber, whether it was rubies from the mountains along the border with Thailand. If there was a good that they could profit from when they needed money, they did it. Um, and so I think there's a lot of parallels that we see between groups like the Khmer Rouge dating back to the 1970s and what tracks research has found in countries like Iraq and Syria today. Um, the networks that have been are in the process of being taken down by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. Um, what I find interesting in them is often how few links are, are in them. Um, I mean, sometimes a matter of three or four individuals between on the ground, peace leaving the country and showing up at a top auction house in the United States. Certainly that's very much the case for pieces that came from Cambodia. We, there was one infamous trafficker there um, who was able to deal on the one hand with uh, looters on the ground in Cambodia, pr presumably looted some pieces actually himself, and also was a high profile figure who was able to deal with the very heights of the art market. Now, I do think, and again, um, Track and George Mason are probably better to speak to this than I am. We're seeing that model shift now with things like the internet that enable um, perhaps wider networks with more individuals. Um, and which, which can also make pieces more difficult to track as well. Yeah, I would add that um, we found with our gap study that um, we did for the Classy project that a lot of these antiquities actors are using the same trade routes and the same networks as um, other forms of illicit trade like narcotics and um, wildlife. Also, um, oftentimes looters and traffickers are approached by other criminals to try to move these materials, narcotics and other things. Um, and then there's a lot of mimicking of the same sort of practices between, for instance, wildlife trafficking and antiquities trafficking online. So we found that um, typically sellers will public publicly advertise the object in order to reach the most, the widest audience, and then they will only invite those that have expressed an interest in, in purchasing the item to more private encrypted messaging systems to sort of complete their transactions. We have a member of this classy team who's part of track, who when he was helping lead the WMD division of the Turkish National Police found some nuclear materials moving along with an antiquities. So the combinations are very varied of what can travel with antiquities. If, if I could just add to that, that's exactly the, that's a great example of, of the issue. 
at, and that's at bottom at all of this, we're talking about value transfer systems. We're talking about entities that are moving any kind of commodities, be them our antiquities or humans. It's the same value transfer systems. Some may be limited as to what they can do because they're small um, and they have to, and they just don't have the, the range or to bring in from all different areas, all different types of commodities. Um, but it certainly can present because they're going to have to have the same structures. They have to have the same structures that allow for, for their payments to come through. They're going to have to have a communication structure. They're going to have to have business structures. They're going to have to present those to the real world so that they don't get caught. If they're going to use banks to move money, the banks, they have to do it in a way that the banks don't suspicious, which means they have to have like uh, type businesses. They can't have anything that makes them look like they're doing anything unusual. These are smart people. They'll know how to build these structures. But the point is, from a financial investigations perspective, you can identify the, that these are the, the elements that have to be present and then in these networks, and then you can attack them in an investigation. So two quick points, if I may add on to this, is that um, one is that the, the trade in terms of being specialized is quite specialized. We found that um, terrorist groups were sort of publicly destroying cultural artifacts while strategically keeping particular items to put up for sale. Um, and another thing is, is that though there are similarities or overlaps with these other types of trade, that the antiquities trade isn't seen as being explicitly illegal like the narcotics trade is. Thank you. There's a question here given from Christina Bain, given COVID, how has the antiquities market been impacted by unstable markets? Has this shifted criminal activity in this area to potentially more lucrative illicit trade areas? Oh, Tess, that's yours. This is a hugely interesting question. And I think the jury is going to be out for some time on exactly what's happening uh, because we're seeing a lot of conflicting information. On the one hand, uh, the art market along with, I suppose, just about every market in the world with the exception of medical businesses and groups like Amazon has been, you know, faced great financial challenges due to COVID. Um, Art uh, galleries have been closed, museums, their doors have been closed, art fairs and exhibitions have been canceled. Uh, we're, I mean, we're talking losses and the billions and a real concern that up to a third of American museums are not going to be able to reopen their doors. That said, on the other hand, um, again, just as COVID has financially benefited some businesses, it's benefiting some in the art market. In particular, a practice, what is called as um, art financing or art lending is skyrocketing. And basically this is borrowing money using art as collateral. And the auction houses um, do, do this. Um, there's also boutique firms uh, that will lend money against art as well. Uh, again, the, the challenge with this, the concern um, to groups like ours at least, is that here you have 
some of the major auction houses, which are acting as de facto financial institutions, but are not subject to the same laws and regulations as any other financial institution would be. So I think that is something that's going to be very interesting to follow. What's happening on the ground, um, with lockdown, there was a flurry of, of reports of, from groups around the world of concern that this would lead to an increase in looting and trafficking as well. And this is something we saw with the, the US government shutdown, the federal shutdown, which I have no concept of time anymore, but I believe that was a couple of years ago. And we saw that, that quite soon after that, there were reports of metal detectors going out to Gettysburg and, and federal parts in the US to loot. And thankfully that shutdown was brief and that was stopped. But as you can imagine, that's happening on a global scale now. You know, I believe at one point, close to half of World Heritage sites were closed. Um, We've also seen cases of, of police and security staff, you know, potentially getting ill. Um, there have been reports of, particularly in the early days of lockdown, of museums in Europe um, empty to visitors. And visitors, of course, provide some protection from theft when there's no one in there. It's perhaps sometimes easier for, for thieves to get in. And we saw this in Europe with the theft of some paintings there. Um, I think it'll also, it's also going to change some trends. I mean, there's understandably been a shift to online selling uh, regardless of good, and that includes art and antiquities. And so groups that are monitoring uh, Facebook and Instagram and, and social media platforms like that, eBay, for antiquities have seen sales just skyrocket. So interesting things are happening, and I think it's going to be uh, a great research topic for scholars to pursue, um, to, to look at the impact of this um, and, and you know, see what happens next and how hopefully policy and law can, can respond. Um, any, anyone have anything to add to that? I think um, generally during COVID, um, shipping has been difficult, uh, preventing delivery of goods in this time that we're living in. Um, but I think there's also a tremendous adaptability of the actors in this trade. So um, they kind of thrive in times of conflict and crisis and they use really creative practices. So what we've noticed is, you know, if there's a, banding of a, a ban of a vendor on a particular platform, they will almost immediately crop back up under a different username or, um, you know, website. And uh, as Tess mentioned, there was the banning of historical artifacts on Facebook during COVID, which I'm very much interested in helping implement in a responsible fashion. Um, you don't, you don't know. a little bit more about that ban, Layla, and then go on to Mike. Yeah, I would like to say in a response to some wonderful work done by Antiquities Coalition, ATAR, Classy, Track, lots, lots and lots of organizations that Facebook this summer um, updated its community standards to add historical artifacts as something that is banned. Um, so you can't sell, advertise any of these on their platforms. Um, my suspicion is that this will, again, with this adaptability, these actors will just move to other spaces, possibly the dark web, possibly just other um, sites. But this is a ban that has not had a lot of information come out around it. And as we've seen through Facebook's less than perfect implementation of these bans in other realms, um, such as wildlife trafficking. Uh, we are trying to build a coalition of organizations and individuals that want that will try to partner with Facebook to make sure that, you know, that the span is actually implemented correctly. Thank you. Mike, sorry. 
Um, just in a general context on the COVID issue, um, I've done several presentations in this particular area. What you have on the law enforcement side is you have a shifting of, of resource. You have a lot of resource being pushed to going after the counterfeit PPEs. You have them going after the issues that are COVID oriented. So while they're looking and investigating over here, this place over here starts to regroup, reorganize and maybe hit areas where we're not looking so close. And the other thing that, that happens is um, the point of the spear, the people that are supposed to do these reviews and these checks, um, the regulations, the rules have been relaxed. They may not have the same access to information they otherwise would. So the ability to identify and detect becomes a vulnerability that is frankly impacting across the board, the art and antiquities sector included. Thank you. I don't see any more. I have a question since there's not another one from the floor. Um, Layla, at one point you talked about the democratization of the art market and it's linked to going online. And can you explain that idea a little more to our audience? Because it's interesting and de deserves a little more attention. Absolutely. So I think when we look historically at the antiquities market, it was very niche, very specialized market. And now with the advent of the internet, um, anyone who's sort of interested in antiquities, learning more about them or even purchasing them are able to do so through Vcoin, Sixbid, you know, eBay, these other platforms. Um, what's worrisome is that these actors are often just really excited, like Tess was saying, like they want to play Lara Croft or Indiana Jones, not really understanding the impact that their purchases can have, which is why with Antiquities Coalition and our task force, we're trying to promote promote more responsible consumption of cultural artifacts. Um, I mentioned this in my presentation, um, decreasing demand. Um, I think along with decreasing demand is also just making sure that people understand that these aren't just, you know, trinkets and that, you know, their interest in holding a piece of history in their hand is, you know, on them, but uh, the, the real repercussions that this has. Um, there's also a lot of when we look at sort of the price listing of a lot of these objects, they're pretty um, low. We see lots of lots and hordes of, of coins being offered on eBay. And so it allows pretty much anyone, like an average person to, to purchase these, these goods. I think there's one of the contributors who ran the American Numismatic Society went online to calculate the growth in the online market for coins. And in the last few years, it's increased into the millions. So this is why Iraq and Syria are like totally pockmarked because everybody's digging up these coins to be selling them online. And, and therefore this is part of the democratization of the market is massive looting and destruction of our cultural heritage. And that has very long-term consequences. So we started off the day learning about destruction of species, and we're ending up the day in the U.S. talking about destruction of cultural heritage and what that means of not understanding our, our, our history, um, and that closes many doors for the future. Maybe Tess wants to say a little more on that. But I, you know, I do think it's an interesting time, and um, an important time to be tackling this issue. And there's certainly so much that, that different groups can be doing. And again, as, as you mentioned, so many of the steps that will 
fight antiquities trafficking, we'll fight wildlife trafficking, we'll fight all different types of illicit trades. And so there's, there's no need to, to reinvent the wheel uh, for this issue. Um, we, there are things that we know that have worked for, for other areas um, that could work for this. And so hopefully again, with increased awareness, um, with increased study and hard data on what's happening, um, there's much that can be done. Mike, I'm sure you have something to add on that. Oh, just uh, a quick note, Dr. Neil Brody, who led the writing of the final report, said to us that the worst invention ever made uh, for this issue was the metal detector mm -hmm. because it just created all of the, the issues. We have technologies making it so much easier to exploit and abuse. And um, law enforcement's always behind the curve. So it's always gonna be a challenge to, to get ahead and try to prevent this stuff, but it's a, it's a, it's a major challenge. So are there any last questions or any last words? We have a, a few minutes left, but I think our audience is probably exhausted after a full day. So I wanna thank you all for being so articulate, so complimentary of your points of view and your expertise. And thank you for being such a good audience. And some of you I know have been online since 8 a.m. this morning. So thank you. Thank you for the Global Initiative for organizing this and for all of you being such an alert community. Thank you. You are listening to Disrupting the Illicit Antiquities Trade in the Real and Virtual World. If you'd like to get more information on this topic and the speakers, head over to the conference website, oc24.globalinitiative.net. There you can also find videos of most of the talks, including a number of discussions that are not part of this podcast series. This was the 24-hour conference on Global Organised Crime podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>